Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. I'm your host Howard Sides. Uh, we are continuing our study in the letter to Thyatira here in Revelation chapter 2 verses 18 through 29. Uh, we are in the fourth installment of this letter um, looking at all these points of what's in here. This, this is one of the longer letters so uh, there is quite a bit to uh, discuss. And we've been um, under this title of what the Lord detested uh, in, in looking at three points. What the Lord detected, what the Lord detested, and then we'll get into what the Lord determined about this church. But under what the Lord detested, uh, there are uh, five things it talks about. Uh, the source of heresy, the seriousness of heresy, the stubbornness of heresy. Um, okay, four. The, and the suppression of heresy. Four things. Sorry about that. And so we'll pick up from there um, and talking about, uh, we've covered the first two, the source and the seriousness. Now we'll, we'll talk about the stubbornness of the heresy. And this is uh, mentioned in verse 21. We'll read that in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 21. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. So uh, there's two points that we can look at under this heading. Uh, one would be God's hand is misunderstood. And then God's hand of mercy. God's hand is misunderstood and God's hand of mercy. Uh, so God's hand is misunderstood. Uh, and under, under that title, one thing that, or one question that, I hear a lot uh, in dealing with some things about why God's hands misunderstood. He said, why does God let bad things happen? And the key to that phrase is that one word, let. Why does God let bad things happen? Well, the, an the answer that we find, the ultimate answer uh, to a biblical question is always a biblical answer. If there's a biblical question, you should find the answer in the Bible. Most people uh, basically already have their minds made up anyway. It's not about whether God allows it to happen. It's, it's man chooses to do it. Uh, most people are seeking human re uh, reasoning to justify an act of God. Um, most of the bad things that happen in this world, we like to lay it at God's feet. You know, how could God let that little girl, uh, you know, what happened to that little girl? How could God let that happen? Uh, why did God let that shooting happen in that school? Why did God let that person die? That's how we phrase the question, right? Well, in fact, the real question or the real answer to that is that God didn't let it happen. We, we chose to do the things that had repercussions to it. When centered into Adam and Eve, then it entered into all of us. And when it entered into all of us, um, Everybody pays a price. It's, it's the payment of sin. It's, it's the price of sin. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1 through 5. Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to heaven, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, whom thou knowest and of whom thou hast heard say, Who can stand before the children of Anak? Understand, therefore, this day 
that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee as a consuming fire. He shall destroy them, and he shall bring them down before thy face. So shalt thou drive them out, and destroy them quickly, as the Lord hath said unto thee. Speak not thou in thine heart, after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. Not for thy righteousness, or for the uprightness of thine heart, dost thou go to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now basically what it's saying there is there's two reasons. God gave his word. When did he make this promise? Genesis 12, 2, he spoke it to Abraham. Genesis 26, 4, he spoke it to Isaac. Genesis 35, 11, he spoke it to Jacob. And Genesis 46, 3, he spoke it again to Jacob as Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, so he promised it to him under the name Israel. Uh, the second part, first was God gave his word. Second is judgment of the wicked. How can God judge so harshly? Well, number one, because God is the creator and ruler of all. Absolute power. Uh, Psalms 50 and verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. Psalms 115 verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. He has creative rights. <laughs> creative rights. He's the creator. He can do what he wants to. Who are we to question him? Uh, the second thing. God is just in all his ways, and righteousness in all his deeds. Genesis 18, 23 through 25. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham had taken God down from fifty to ten righteous people. But then... In Genesis 18 and verse 33. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. And Abraham returned unto his place. Why did not Abraham talk him down to one person? If it had been one person, that one person would have been Lot. But, and I don't know why. But it said that the Lord went his way, and as soon as he left talking with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his way. So the conversation was going, and then it ended. And Abraham went home. And I've asked that question myself. Did Abraham just stop praying? Did he get tired? Did, did, did he think 10 was as a good number that he could find 10? Uh, does it even say where he went to look for 10? Or was he afraid to ask God for anything less? So, you know, one, or from 10 down to five to one or whatever. That, that, that's a good question to me. I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, Romans 9, 14 through 16 says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on, on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. 
but of God that showeth mercy. So it doesn't have anything to do with you. It's all about God. It's always all about him. Let me say that again. It is always all about God. The very next verse, 17, says that Pharaoh was born to be an example of God's power to the whole world. All mankind is a sinner and God's enemy. All we deserve is his justice, not his mercy. We, we think we have earned his mercy some way or somehow we've deceived ourselves or Satan's deceived us into thinking, you know, look at me, I'm worth this, I'm worth that. Uh, we're worth nothing. Does the crime fit the punishment? The difference. Say I go up and smack a private citizen. Uh, well, there's probably going to be a fight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're going to get into a fight. Uh, but what about if I walked up to a police officer and smacked him? Well, then there's going to be a little bit more serious repercussions to that, right? What about if I walked up to the president of the United States of America, which, well, I wouldn't do it to this one, but the next, maybe the next one or the one before ours, I certainly, well, I better leave that alone. But anyway, let's just take a person who's president or whatever. If I smacked him, well, the Secret Service has the authority of extreme prejudice. It's it's very highly likely that you're going to get hurt. Um, quite possibly you get killed. Any sin against the ultimate holy creator of all is a maximum sin. Any sin is a maximum sin. We try to categorize it. God says sin is sin. Uh, look at the example of Jericho. Numbers 13, 1 through 33. Uh, Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Why would God have Israel wipe out entire races of people? That's a good question. Why would God have Israel wipe out entire races of people instead of just losing a war or driving them out, you know, pushing them out of the land that he said? <clears throat> Trevon Wax, in his uh, book, says that Deuteronomy shows two types of battles. The first type is battles fought within the promised land. That is, Israel was not allowed to spare anyone. This was an act of divine judgment. Okay, then the other was battles fought outside the promised land. Israel was able to spare people or allowed to spare people. God ultimately wanted a people to his own, unaffected and uninfluenced by the world around them. And that's basically what it comes down to. It's not that he wanted to wipe them out because he hated them. God wanted to wipe them out because they would be an uh, influence against his children the Israelites. And you think, man, that's pretty harsh. Again, they chose to sin. It wasn't God's fault. It was their own fault. They chose to sin. Because God shows us long-suffering and patience, we misinterpret that and think he will always be that way and nothing else. We misinterpret that. And think it will always be that way and nothing else. We don't like to think of the judgment side of God. We don't like to think of the eyes of fury as it talked about in verse 18. You know, the eyes of flame. We don't want to see that side of God. We want to see the old grandfatherly type that we walk up to and hug. And everything's forgiven. Everything's forgotten. Praise be to God. And 
Southern Gospel Convention and carrying on, we forget there is a vengeful and furious and judgment side of God. And it's not because he hates us. It's because he hates sin. Okay, so uh, the next thought, God's hand of mercy. God's hand of mercy. Since God did not strike down wickedness as soon as it shows up, uh, man deceives himself into thinking that God is okay with what's going on. And there's a lot of that going on today. I have people tell me all the time, well, you know, it used to be a sin, but uh, God lets it go on, so it must not be a sin. I think God's relaxed his state. And I'm like, how can you possibly think that? But that's, that's they've convinced themselves. They've deceived themselves. So God stays his hand of judgment so we can have the chance to repent. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul tells us that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. And just like that says in, in our um, verse here, in verse 21, and I gave her space to repent of her fornication. And she repented not. <laughs> so that explains that. Okay. Um, the last one here, the suppression of the heresy. The suppression of the heresy, verse 20 through 22 uh, and 23. And let's uh, go ahead and read those verses, 22 and 23. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. So we see three things here. Number one, he is patient in judgment. Number two, he is practical in judgment. And number three, he is perfect in judgment. So the first thing, he is patient in judgment. And that's in that phrase, Be, uh, verse 22, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. The Lord here is still speaking about the possibility of repentance to this church. Prophecies of doom are usually uttered in hopes that they might never be fulfilled. The prophecy of Jonah in chapter 3 and verse 4, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The Lord would much rather pardon than punish. I mean, he loves us. He wants us to repent. And he wants to show us the love. But if we refuse it, he's not going to force himself on us. It's our choice. Why did God let that happen? He didn't. We did. We made it happen, as a matter of fact. All right, second point. He's practical in judgment. The first part of verse 23 and I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. Now that phrase, her children there, speaks of those who have been brought into the local company of believers, not through the new birth, but through the doctrine set forth by this Jezebel of fornication and adultery, talked about in verse 20. So it's not like little young kids is talking about her children that she brought in under this apostasy. Uh, judgment is not only disciplinary, it is also exemplary. Uh, in, in, in other words, exemplary means it gives as an example to others. Sometimes bad things happen to people, so it would be an example 
to somebody else. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20. Them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. Uh, the phrase, know that I am he, the Lord and God, is used 77 times in the Bible. Know that I am he, the Lord and God, 77 times in the Bible. The number seven is the number of completion. The number 70 is the number of perfection of spiritual truth and divine order. So when you put them two together, the number 77 shows that God is perfect in who he is, in what he says, and in what he does. <clears throat> All right. The next phrase, uh, searcheth the reins and hearts. Searcheth the reins and hearts. Now, the ancient Hebrew psychology considered the kidneys and bowels as the seat of human emotions and the heart the seat of thought. So he suggests here that he knows all their emotions and all their thoughts. That's what he's talking about. So the third part, he's perfect in judgment, the second half of verse 23. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Now, in Scripture, salvation is always according to faith and judgment is always according to works. Let me say that again. Salvation is always according to faith and judgment is always according to works. And there's a, a Scripture on that, Romans chapter 2. I was trying to turn over there real quick so I could start reading while you're looking, but we'll turn there together. Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 16, talks about this very well. <clears throat> Remember, the statement is that salvation is always according to faith, and judgment is always according to works. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, thou art inexcusable. Thou, who is thou? Look up at verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So it's not only that they know it's wrong, but they enjoy it so much that they celebrate it with other people. So therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest does the same things." But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitence, Penitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life, but unto them that are con con contentious, contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey the unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. Basically, that, that means everybody. That's what he's talking about there. 
All right. So the Lord, who is the only one that knows our thoughts and emotions, is the only one capable of giving perfect judgment. All right. So that covers uh, two of the three uh, main thoughts here to this letter to the church. First one being what the Lord detected. The second being what the Lord detested. And now we'll get into this third one. What the Lord determined about this church. What the Lord determined about this church. And under that thought, let me get the notes out here. <laughs> We're going to look at two main thoughts this time. Verses 24 through 25 talks about the overseer and his fellows. The overseer and his fellows. And then verses 26 through 29 talks about the overcomer and his future. The overcomer and his future. All right. So verse uh, 24 and 25, the overseer and his fellows. Uh, the first part of that, it talks about a small remnant here. A small remnant. Uh, but unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine. In other words, he's saying, while this thing is rampant, there are a few of you left. Uh, now, this is the opposite situation from per Pergamos. In Pergamos, there were individuals who were guilty of evil, but the church as a whole was looked upon as free from sin. Now, in Thyatira, there were individuals who were free from sin, but the church as a whole is looked upon as evil. So the balance has shifted, you see. Uh, the you here would suggest a specific reference to the pastor, most likely. The phrase, and unto the rest, and as many as have not, speaks to the parishioners who were rejecting this false teacher. So there were some who were uh, resisting. They had not, uh, as it were, fallen into this great deception. <clears throat> Okay, so that's a small remnant. Now look at uh, the second part of that verse and it talks about Satan's resources. <clears throat> uh, this doctrine. Now, John Gill suggests that this doctrine is that of the Church of Rome. Now, by the Church of Rome, I mean the Roman Catholic Church. There is no other Church of Rome. It's the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, based on the statements of verse 20, this would fit with ideas being taught in that day. Some heretics of that day believed it was a necessary duty to allow the body to experience the deepest of sins while keeping the soul unaffected. Um, <coughs> excuse me. There is a song uh, that Frankie Ballard put out. I forget what year it was. I can't remember. But he kind of carries this thought. The name of the title uh, or title of the song is Young and Crazy. Frankie Ballard's song, Young and Crazy. And uh, listen to the words of it. This, this is how it goes. And I, I'm quoting from the song. Verse, One day I'll slow and lay down. Spend my weekends in a swing on a wraparound. Oh, but these days I'm on a mission to get these wild oats out of my system. Yeah, I might stay out all night. I've got to do a little wrong so I know what's right. How will I know where to draw the line if I don't cross it a few hundred times? I've got to live. I've got a life. A, yeah, I've got to live a lot of life if I'm going to give good advice. 
when I'm talking to my grandbabies? How am I ever going to get to be old and wise if I ain't ever young and crazy? End quote. Uh, wow. <laughs> Quite, mm. what advice that is, huh? How can I tell them how not to be if I don't be that way? Do you see the oxymoron in that? What's the point of telling them not to live that way if through your life you did live that way? I mean, <laughs> it's great. It, man, I'm telling you, the level of... Okay, I'm going to leave that alone. All right. Uh, Jezebel's teaching of spiritual infidelity would certainly lead to physical fornication. I mean, it, it just goes right in hand with it. Now, the problem here is that this directly conflicts with Bible doctrine. Directly conflicts with biblical doctrine. as Bible doctrine, biblical doctrine. Romans 12, 2. And be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And listen, on this thought about this song, where he's, that phrase that he says, how can I, uh, how will I know where to draw the line if I don't cross a few hundred? Uh, how am I ever going to get to be old and wise? Uh, what was that last phrase? If I ain't ever young and crazy. It's this philosophy that, well, if I don't ever do wrong, how am I going to know what's right? Let me tell you something. And I've heard this example a hundred times. Maybe you've heard it too, but it's it's worth repeating. One thing in the United States that we always have to watch for, um, I guess the government has to watch for it, really, counterfeit money, fake money. It's a big business. I wish I had thought about this before I started the lesson. I'd have looked it up to get some numbers for you to see just how big of a business it is. But anyway, you know Confederate money's a problem. Now, who is whose job is it to look out for uh, fake money? Uh, it, it's actually a department of the Secret Service, the Department of the Treasury. They all Secret Service falls under the Department of Treasury. Now you think that, um, like we sit in class, you know, we go through history, we learn all the, uh, you know, well, we learn who did what right, we learn who did what wrong, and we discuss it. And, you know, we we pull the philosophy out of it. Well, this is the right way, this is the wrong way. So you think that same philosophy used by uh, the Department of Treasury in teaching their agents how to spot counterfeit money. They give them real good examples of fake money. That That's not at all what they do. You know how they train their agents? They teach them how to know the real thing so well that the minute they see a confederate, confederate, listen to me, a, is that right? No. Counterfeit. Yeah. I don't know. Man, I got a crazy brain, I guess, whatever. Anyway, they they train them up and down, front and back, forwards and backwards, top to bottom, bottom to top, left to right, right to left, what the real dollar looks like. And by knowing the real thing so well, they immediately spot a counterfeit. They don't learn about the counterfeit. They know the truth so well 
that the counterfeit stands out immediately. That's how you know. That's how you know where the line is. That's what Jesus was teaching right there. Um, that next phrase, the depths of Satan. Uh, the accumulation of knowledge was a status promoter here. Whole civilizations were caught up in this uh, in this thing. Acts chapter 17 talks about another one. Uh, let's flip over there. I'll read that to you. Acts chapter 17, um, verse 16, down through 23. Oops, skipped a page. Acts 17, verse 16, down through 23. And talking about whole civilizations caught up in this knowledge thing. Oh, knowledge is power. Well, to a point it is. I mean, I mean, I'll give you that. I mean, you can't walk through life being a complete idiot, but it's what your knowledge is in, really. Verse 16, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, just slam full of idols. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto uh, Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there uh, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that this, uh, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. And the word for that superstition there is religious. You're too religious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. I'm just talking about they had idols up all over the city and and even to a, uh, a God that they didn't know just for an insurance policy. They were going to worship them all just in case. I'm just talking about, man, you're crazy. <coughs> all right. Now the word deep uh, was a favorite expression used to separate one from common man. Um, let me get back over here. The depths, yeah, the depths of Satan. That's why I used that word depth. The word deep was a favorite expression used to separate one from common man. If anyone asked any questions about the system, the response would be, it is too profound or it is unspeakable. Uh, basically, uh, gave anyone the opportunity to be part of it, even when they didn't understand it themselves. Uh, as they would never have to explain it. Oh, well, it's totally beyond your understanding. They didn't know what they were talking about themselves. <laughs> uh, there are mysteries and designs of Satan hid from view. These depths would indicate some there had knowledge of the mysteries of Babylon, which was the worship of Ashtoreth and his mother, uh, which is mother-son worship. And, and we'll talk about that in a lot more detail later. But mother-son Worship is still going on today. Mother, son, worship. Also known as the Roman Catholic Church. Mother, son, 
worship. Now, Albert Barnes, in his commentary, uh, says here, and I quote, the allusion here is not to any trials or sufferings that Satan might bring upon anyone or to any temptations of which he might be the author, but to his profound art in inculcating. Inculcating means to enforce by repeated instruction. In inculcating error and leading people astray. And that is exactly what they're doing with evolution today. They have repeated it and repeated it and repeated it and repeated it until these professors who have absolutely no way of proving evolution, because there is no proof of evolution, emphatically state, oh, there's proof everywhere. There's proof everywhere. It's shown in this. It's shown in that. Uh, one example uh, that I get from Dr. Uh, Kent Hoven, who's who's on YouTube, um, is called circular reasoning. Circular reasoning or circular dating, I think, actually is scientific term. But th this is what it is. Okay, you have a chunk of rock with a fossil in it. Okay? And you'll ask them, uh, well, how old is the rock? Well, the uh, rock is um, 500 million years old. 500 million years old. Okay. Well, how old's the fossil? Uh, well, the fossil is 300 million years old. Okay. Well, how do you know the rock is 500 years old? Well, we know the rock is 500 years old because we've determined that the bone is 300 years old. Okay, well, how do you know the bone is 300 years old? Who was the, who was there? Oh, no, no, no. Well, we know the bone is 300 years old because the rock is 500 years old. And that's their argument. That is circular reasoning. Th that's how they pick all these. L listen, when I was in school many eons ago, it was still known as the theory of evolution. It was an unproved science. Is still an unproved science. But the general terminology in public school then was that it was an unproven theory. The theory of evolution. In the books today, it is the science of evolution. Science means it's been proven. And there is no proof. And I, before long, I'm going to get into it. I, I think I'll probably have to some way either contact Dr. Well, actually, he gives proof at the end to use his notes, and I think we're going to do that. It's worth going through there. Uh, you need to know. You need to know what they're teaching your children in school today, in public schools. Uh, some private schools are actually going that way now, but in public schools, they are seriously pushing this theory of evolution and cramming it down your child's throat to indoctrinate them and prepare them for socialism. I mean, that's what it's all about. When it boils down to it, evolution is a false religion. The rejection of God is to worship a false God. And if you're worshiping a false God, then you're worshiping evolution. Evolution is a false religion. But that, that's a... Okay, I've done chased that rabbit long enough. All right. Uh, let's see. First thought was what the unbeliever claimed. This doctrine, what the unbeliever claimed. Now, what the believer condemned, I actually didn't point them out. This is under um, Satan's resources. Second part of verse 24 there. Um, that phrase, as they speak. This does not mean that those in error called their own doctrines the depths of Satan. <laughs> By any means, I'm sure they didn't. Um, I'm sure they thought what they were learning or teaching was right. But the small remnant of true believers 
were using this phrase because they actually understood through the Holy Spirit that this knowledge everyone was seeking was a dangerous ploy of Satan's. They knew it for what it was and they were calling it out. We are continually warned about false apostles, false ministers, false preachers, and false teachers. In the second chapter alone, we are warned about doctrines, uh, uh, doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of Balaam, and this teaching of Jezebel. Uh, it was growing and it was graduating. It was just continually going on. Okay, um, now the last thought uh, in this section, the secure rest. The secure rest in the last part of verse uh, 24. Oh, actually not the last thought. Got one in 25, but secure rest is in the next one, okay? Last part of verse 24. Uh, I will put upon you none other burden. I will put upon you none other burden. Some would assume that the Lord here speaks of no more opposition, but that is not the context. The next verse tells them to hold fast to that which ye have. This suggests that what the Lord is telling them is to hold on to the doctrines that they do have and not to worry about the others. In other words, basically what he was telling them is don't take on any more. <laughs> don't take on any more. You just hold on to what you've got. Stand is what he's telling them to do. Just stand. Uh, the matching scripture for this is Acts 15, 28, 29. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves ye shall do well. Fare ye well. So instead of worrying about all of it wrapped up in a nutshell, just worry about them things right there. That was the things that was affecting them in that day, so just stick with that. Um... I will put upon you none other burden. Now, this exposes us to grace. This is what it was. Grace, again, by definition, is favor or kindness shown without regard to the worth or merit of the one who receives it and in spite of what that person deserves. There's a song we sing in our uh, church choir. Uh, the title of it is New Grace. New Grace. Um, the verses uh, go like this. All of grace is my story, all the way from earth to glory. Since by grace he lifted me from sin and woe, living grace he has extended, as on him my heart depended, and he'll give new grace when it's my time to go. There's been grace for every trial. There's been grace for every mile. There's been grace sufficient from his vast supply. Grace to make my heart more tender. Grace to love and pray for sinners. But there will be new grace when it's my time to die. And basically what that's talking about is that there are all different kinds of grace that we can have. You don't need dying grace until you're dying. You don't need uh, penitent grace until you need to be penitent. Uh, I mean, that you know, that's... What I'm talking about, there's different kinds of grace that God gives us. You don't need patient grace until you need to be patient. <clears throat> okay? <clears throat> uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 14. Now, all these things happen unto them for in samples, or examples, and they are written for our admonition, um, a teaching tool, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that think he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. 
But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, in the previous verses, Paul had been warning them about lusting, which was covered in Numbers chapter 11, uh, idolatry, which is covered in Numbers chapter 32, uh, fornication, which is Numbers chapter 25, tempting Christ or tempting God, Numbers chapter 21, uh, and murmuring, Numbers chapter 14. And we also know Lot about Lot and his family. Uh, they had been traveling around with Abraham. And uh, they both got so great with the blessings of God. God blessed them both so much that they just had to split apart. They couldn't go together anymore. And, and in Lot's life, we see his gradual decline. And then we see his great deceit. Uh, in his gradual decline, as you read the passages there, Genesis chapter 13 and verse 10 says that they moved to the plain of Jordan. They moved to the plain of Jordan. And then in verse 12, it says that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. His door, when he opened his door, the first thing he saw was not God. It was Sodom. And then in the next chapter, chapter 14 and verse 12, it says that he dwelled in Sodom. And when you skip a couple of uh, chapters later in chapter 19, uh, it talks about in verse 1 that he sat in the gate of Sodom. And then in verse 7 of the same chapter, he calls the Sodomites brethren. And then in verse 8, he offers his two daughters to the Sodomites sexually. I mean, this man fell a long way. So in that, we see his uh, gradual decline. But then we also see his great deceit. Uh, chapter 19, verse 16 says, God's angels had to lead Lot's entire family out of Sodom forcefully, by hand. They literally and practically had to drag them out, even after they knew what was coming. Uh, a few verses later, 19, chapter 19, verse 26, Lot's wife looked back and turned to a pillar of salt after she had distinctly and specifically been told not to look back or she would turn into a pillar of salt. And she did it anyway. Uh, a few verses later, verse 32 to 38, Lot's daughters got him drunk and had incest with him. Uh, they both got pregnant. And from this act of incest, uh, the son of each one, one was Moab, which is the father of Moabites. The other child was Ben-Ami, which is the father of the Ammonites. These were two of Israel's biggest opponents and thorns in their side throughout the whole Exodus thing. <laughs> I mean, were the biggest in Moabites and Ammonites. Uh, verse 13 of uh, what we were talking about there in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 13, it says, God will make a way. Now, this shows us the personal attention of the Lord. Notice what it does not say. It does not say that God will take you out of it. It says God will make a way through that you may be able to bear it. It's uh, He's not going to take you out of it, but he will help you get through it. And it also says that he's not going to put something on you that you can't handle. 
Most of us just give up right before the finish line. So maintain your testimony and keep clear, clear of those cults. Now the word burden there is the Greek word baros, which means a weight. It is a weight. <clears throat> I will put upon you none other burden. I'm not going to add any more weight to you. Uh, the final thought here in verse 25, seize and retain. Seize and retain. But that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. Things had gone too far for the remnant to stop. They'd just gone too far. It is interesting to note that while God was still showing grace to Jezebel and her followers in verse 22, remember that phrase, except they repent, he was also showing his omniscience in telling this small remnant to just hang on. Hold fast here is like stand still in the Old Testament. Same thing. Hold fast, stand still. All right. So that is our first thought, uh, the overseer and his fellows. Uh, the second thought, the overcomer and his future, verse 26 through 29. And that's covered in two parts. First, Christ promises power on earth. And then second, Christ promises power in heaven. Uh, the first one promises power on earth, verse 26 through 27. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. Now these words come from Psalms chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 in describing the millennial reign of Christ. When he says, my works, it contrasts those following the works of Jezebel being threatened with judgment versus those following the works of Christ who are promised a reward. And he shall rule them. In Psalms 2, the passage states, Thou shalt break, while here it states, He shall rule. Now, the passage in Psalms refers to the triumphant Christ returning and ruling. The millennial reign is what it's talking about. But this passage, in Barnes Notes, uh, he talks about it in his commentary. And I quote, His redeemed people will be associated with Him in this dominion. To rule with a scepter of iron is not to rule with a harsh and tyrannical sway, but with power that is firm and invincible. It denotes a government of strength, or one that cannot be successfully opposed, one in which the subjects are effectually subdued, end quote. Uh, then that phrase, with a rod of iron. There's another contrast here. From the human point of view, the only thing awaiting this church was total annihilation. Total annihilation. But from Christ's point of view, the only thing awaiting this church was triumphant absolution triumphant absolution and then the final thought here thought final thought uh christ promises power in heaven verses 28 29 and i will give him the morning star uh the morning star is of course jesus christ to him uh to have him is to have everything uh the morning star is jesus christ now john phillips in his commentary um <laughs> makes a statement, and I love this story. Uh, I'll, I'll, I quote, We are reminded of the Roman patrician whose wealthy father had died, leaving all he possessed to Marcellus, a slave. In his will, he stipulated that his noble son could choose one thing and one thing only from his estate. I'll take Marcellus, said the sharp-witted son, unquote. <laughs> That's great. 
Uh, everything we need is in Jesus Christ. All we have to do is claim him. Uh, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Again, notice that plural form, churches. All of these seven letters are individually written to one church. But yet in them, individual churches, the letter reciprocates to all the other six churches and to us today. And that there's warnings for everybody. Now, the order of the phrase changes here from the previous ones. In the letter to Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos, this phrase proceeds the promises to the overcomer. But here, and in the last three, the phrase follows the promises to the overcomer. Now, William MacDonald, in his Believer's Bible Commentary, uh, says, and I quote, This may indicate that from this point on, only those who overcome are expected to have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Unquote. And that covers the letter to the church at Thyatira. And that took quite a while. Uh, I'm glad you hung on. If you did, if not, I don't know why, but I certainly hope it wasn't anything I said, because all I did was give you what comes straight out of the Bible. I do offer some opinions, but um, when it comes to serious things, I, I try and, and stick wholly to the Bible. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to apologize for that. But anyway, uh, I certainly have enjoyed that. Um, we're, I guess, on the middle letter. We, we've covered four. We just finished four. We got three to go. So uh, I hope you'll tune in next time. And it, we'll talk about this letter to... Uh, the lethargic church. It's a dead church. The church to the uh, message to the church in Sardis. And again, I hope you enjoyed this. I uh, certainly hope God blesses you for listening to it, not because it's me, but because you're studying his word uh, and you're showing an aptitude for learning. And God will certainly bless you for that. I really sincerely believe that. Okay. Uh, so until next time, I hope you have a great day. Or great evening as it may be, wherever you're at. And thank you for listening and God bless you.